Welcome to the Treadwells podcast with your host, Christina Oakley Harrington, and very special guest, Julian Vane. This podcast was recorded via Zoom on the 7th of July, 2020. For more podcasts and online content, such as our popular introductory video tutorials, please visit www.treadwells-london.com forward slash treadwells online. So I'm here with Julian Bain and we're in our remote uh, locations because of the great COVID excitement. And uh, we're going to have a conversation that touches on the late 80s, early 90s, which is the time that both of us got involved in magic. And the second half of the conversation, we're going to talk a bit about entheogens in magical culture, um, both in the early 90s um, and a bit earlier and, and more recently and on some of the stuff that Julian is involved with. Julian, it's so good to see you again. So good to hear you, mate. <laughs> Christina, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for doing the My Magical Thing. It's been really appreciated. It's lovely to see you again. Lovely to be on the Treadwells podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. I was reminded when I was preparing for this about uh, where I remember you for the first time. I don't know if we were introduced, but it was the very first Talking Stick London Pub Moot. And I think it was a launch event, so it was very much the occasion to be at. It was the upstairs of, I believe, the Plough in Museum Street, Alistair Crowley's drinking pub, one of them, many. Um, and it was a new thing, not the pub moot, but this particular lecture moot, which became super famous. And I remember you asked a question. I don't remember what it was. You were there with your then partner. And it got me thinking about, you know, Certainly in London, the lecture pub moot was so critically important for getting involved in magic at that time. I moved to London in January 1990 from, from Philadelphia, New York. And the first thing I was told by Fred, whose house I lived in, I was a lodger in an old magician's house. He said, we must go to the pub moot. You must go. This is given the rules about how you get involved in magic. And one of them was to go to the pub moot. Um, what took you there? You weren't living in London at that time, so but but the Talking Stick pub moot it was quite the occasion, wasn't it? It, it was a, it was a really big deal, wasn't it? Um, yeah, uh, I have fond memories of that time. It was interesting. I mean, I was kind of um, a, you know uh, I don't know I'm 52 this year, so that kind of like gives people a bit of an index as to kind of what was going on. I mean, I got involved with a coven in North London when I was uh, 16. Uh, mm -hmm. We had the whole kind of like, you know, the high priestess had to phone up my mum and sort of say, you know what he's getting involved in? But oh yes, I understand. Tremendously tolerant, lovely people, my parents. Um, but yes, I definitely remember then kind of entering this community and um, uh, finding, you know, all these fascinating people that would gather at the Talking Stick uh, pub moot, um, uh, hosted by uh, Amanda and, and Caroline Stick. Um, the, the magazine fame and so on. Um, and it was a, an amazing meeting place. I remember meeting um, Gerald's sister there and, you know, having conversations with him. Uh, um, who else do I recall from there? I think Fred Lamont, various other sort of people from that kind of time. Caroline Wise? Yes, yes, of course, of course, yeah. of course, Caroline Wise. Um, and I think that, that what you were looking at in, the, in that period is, you know, essentially we're talking pre-internet. Um, and so the, the two transport layers that existed, um, uh, uh, as far as I could see, with, in terms of communication, what was the media of communication? And there were two things. There was um, uh, the pub moots, 
like the talking stick one, like the ones that, that, that you know, happened across the country. And the way you would find out about those is you would go and you get a zine. You get a kind of uh, uh, Xerox produced or um, uh, generally Xerox produced and a hand stapled kind of magazine. You can see collections of these now in the Witchcraft Museum. Um, of all the kind of different stuff that people produced, including, of course, things like Talking Stick magazine, um, which was you know, lovely. I think I've still got some copies of it knocking around somewhere. Um, and in the back of all of these magazines, there would be exchange adverts. So everyone would exchange information with everyone else. Yeah. So there was this real sense of like a, a network. It was a very, I guess it was a very kind of punk sort of DIY sort of structure, really. You know, it was, um, and then the pub moots were the kind of the gatherings of those people. And then there'd been those other sort of nexus points of, you know, bookshops um, uh, and, and, and kind of, you know, other, other sort of locations. But I think it was this first um, opportunity for pagans to kind of come over ground and for the kind of coven structures to become a lot more... Um, there was, a, there was a fluidity within that population. So people would gather in the pub moot and sometimes you'd get people sort of going off and working with other people and sort of ceremonies <laughs> unfolding. Public things happened like the, uh, the campaign to preserve the uh, Oxley's Woods, um, the, the ancient woodland in, in, uh, in, in London uh, from developers. So there was, uh, yeah, I mean, you know. The scenes were amazing because um, they, were, they were a way in for people who were remote geographically so I was living in Philadelphia and um, I knew I was going to be moving back to the UK but I didn't know anybody I and I remember my first list of zines was in the back of Margot Adler's Drawing Down the Moon and uh, including some British ones and so I subscribed I remember writing about about like a hundred checks they had checks and I these checks were these international money orders for you know about, I subscribed to about 30 or 40 of these zines and they'd come in to, they'd be delivered to my little in, in West Philadelphia and in the backs of those were other exchange adverts and in the back of those were other exchange adverts and so there were listings of the public so any any major city you were in in the UK or Scotland you could, you could either write to somebody, phone somebody go to a pub on a certain evening and one of the small exchange adverts was put in by Fred Lamond who said any visiting Americans coming through London who want to go to lunch um, here's my phone number and so I unexpectedly found myself in London and uh, I never thought I'd go to London I thought I was going to live in Scotland forever but anyway I got ill and I went to Reading and then I found myself just outside of London I thought, well, why not? and I had clipped that advert from like a year before in the back of my little diary notebook if I'm ever in London, there is this old guy um, who will have lunch with traveling Americans. And I phoned him up and it was met him and I moved into his house as a page later. Uh, he introduced me to the coven he was in two weeks after that, or even maybe even that same night. And that was my way into actually the coven that I did join. Um, but, but, you know, it was, this, it, was, it was a little clip in the back of a, a zine was a doorway into my, actually a group in a, in a pathway that suited me and was mine for the rest of so far knock on wood the rest of my life uh and, and there was you know there was no internet sussing there was there was no internet there was no internet and so all of that was out you were doing so much if you weren't in a city you were doing so much before you met anybody face to face of course when you were going to meet face to face people always said meet me in the any non-American listeners, this is what English people do. They meet in the pub. It's a public house. 
It's a house where you can meet somebody where you're safe, where you can stay for 10 minutes, or you can stay for three hours, or you can go off into the woods and do a ceremony that night if you want. Um, it's a room, it, was a, it was a really cool system. Really cool system. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, your description of that is lovely, and it's like this kind of, the way that it worked back in the day, in the olden days, was that you had this sort of slow burn process. So you've got that clipping that you're keeping for like a year or whatever it is. Yeah. So you've got this thing, this kind of like little ray of opportunity, this little kind of token to uh, get you access to the world of magic. And then once that kind of slow burn process happens, it's like, boom, right now I'm meeting people. Now I'm meeting like all these people, you know, like, people who are sort of, you know, writers in their field, because it's, you know, at the end of the day, the, the occult community um, in, in that sort of manifestation as a scene, as a, as a you know, a, a group of people meeting in public houses is relatively small. Um, so there's that sense of like, um, suddenly you're kind of up close and personal with the witches who previously had been things in exotic zines from far flung parts of the country. And now they're genuine people standing in front of you. You know, so there's a there's an interesting thing there. I think one of the things that I I noticed that um, so I do bits of kind of work doing kind of online mentoring for people and all that sort of stuff, and it's uh, which is really interesting. One of the things that happens is that many of those people are a little bit younger than I am, maybe twenty years younger, something like this. And part of the reason that I think people seek out, you know, speaking to me or like other people that they consider to be um, uh, I don't know, wise in this field or familiar with it at the very least, um, is that there's so much information now. You know, when I was a kid, there was like, what was in the local library? Uh, that was it. There was what was in the local, and then eventually I figured out you could do it into the library loan. And also because the culture was really different. You know, I remember being as a kid, getting my interlibrary loan of the copy of the Key of Solomon. And it was like this kind of, like I've got, I've got drugs now or something yes, like it, that. It was like having drugs. Gone. I've got this kind of this forbidden thing and everyone's going to look at me weird. And that's kind of cool, but also unnerving, you know, because I'm a hominid, I'm a human. I like to, you know, have good relationships with the other humans around me, by and large. So, so there's that, there was that sense of like, um, uh, there was a, a, a sense of the, the, um, the outlaw nature of what you were interested in. I mean, I remember organising a pub moot in uh, in Bristol in, I guess it would have been like the early 90s. And even just going to the pub and saying, hello, we'd like to hire your room, please, on a Tuesday evening, first Tuesday of the month or whatever it happened to be. Um, and they'd say, oh, what's it for? And you'd sort of, you, you'd kind of almost feel that you had to go, oh, well, it's like, um, you know, it's talks about of religion or spirituality or something you, you probably folklore, have, folklore definitely folklore, folklore. folklore. Yeah, yeah 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 yes you've reminded me folklore that was the thing folklore was basically the cover story that you weren't you know these these weird people who um you know at various points all sorts of kind of stories all sorts of ideas you know floating around there in culture um but yes, that's how it worked. It was a sort of a slow process, and then suddenly you were kind of in the community and you were with those with those people if you chose to go to one. If you chose. Pubs. I remember getting the zines, reading the zines, and there were these various adverts where you could meet a coven, um, and it was really unnerving. I was living, I was, I was sort of hitchhiking my way through Scotland, living in bothings and various things, and on the memory on the Isle of Arran, there was a coven you could meet, and I got a funny feeling. It's got a funny feeling 
And I didn't offer to meet them in a pub. I could have written to them. I could have phoned the phone number. I could have said, well, you know, I'm, I'm living in Scotland now. Should we meet in the pub? And I, I didn't. Um, as it turns out, it turned out, it was exposed several years later that it was a very, very sordid, incest-based um, group. Dodgy as hell. Uh, but I did do their correspondence course, you know, good two lessons before I you know, ran out of steam. Uh, so there's that, and, you know, likewise, friends of mine, you know, wrote to the advert in the, the back of a magazine and, and met a perfectly lovely group. There was that thing of, you're absolutely so right, the slow burn, having the piece of paper in your hands, having the, having the zine, am I going to write, am I going to not write, who am I going to meet, what's going to be like? Remember, I ordered some incense from a Covenant slough went out to slough on the train to pick it up and they were a bit nervous to meet me. I was a bit nervous to meet them. We had a cup of tea and as I was leaving, they said, well, if you are interested in our group, we'd love to see you again. And, you know, I didn't pursue it, but it was like, it's like, maybe to this day, it's still like dating, but I do remember it being like you know, dating off of adverts a little bit. And once you were in London, you could go to a pub mood. It was much easier. It was a bit like speed dating or making friends and having something to talk about. Um, <laughs> um, you see, that, that I think is an interesting thing, because in terms of like the, um, uh, whether you're congruent with a group, and indeed whether it's safe to hang out with whichever group of people it is, one of the nice things about the pub movies is it was an opportunity for people to kind of come together, and you could basically eyeball people, you could get like what people's opinions were, and you know, you could get a sense of, you know, and a lot of the pub movies would have people kind of do talks or presentations and stuff as well, so there was that kind of thing going on, and I think that, um, yeah, so there was definitely a, a sense that this was a, a, an interesting kind of shared space with lots of different people, lots of different kind of traditions and, and, and paths kind of coming together. Um, and there were, you know, there were very, very good reasons for that because there was the whole kind of um, satanic ritual abuse thing that happened around about that time as well, which was, you know, really unpleasant for a whole variety of different people and, you know, investigations were made and blah blah that whole story unfolded but the know. funny thing is we just have to explain a little bit for our younger listeners what that is because many of them don't remember it or don't know what it is which is just to say that the evangelical uh, christian movement teamed up with the expose uh, tabloid newspapers and did they developed a foment of a fear genuine genuine fear widespread fear that witches covens were abusing babies uh, and killing infants and fetuses and uh, abusing children in, in ceremonial settings in covens. Mm -hmm. And it was so serious that the police were involved, social work was involved, and there were three families who, by coincidence, were not pagan um, in uh, the north of England and in Scotland that had their children taken away uh, and care while it was being investigated. Uh, and that went on, I guess it was kicked off in 89 or 90, and it was not put to bed until 92 or 93. So those were three, three or four critical years. Um, it was put to bed, younger readers, listeners here, um, when the government employed an investigative team and teamed up with some religious sociologists, working with the police and working with a good number of senior pagans and people who are well connected. And it was traced back to be a fabrication that was put about by some evangelical social work. So there was no satanic. It was, it was, a, you know, but it was a very scary time. And it, it, there was a lot, there was a lot of 
um, disagreement about how it should be handled. Some pagans said, you know, get in there and fight them with every tooth and nail, write lots of angry letters. Other people said, you know, well, you know, we need to make nice. Some people said we need to show that we don't you know, do anything that's transgressive. Other people said, you know, we are transgressive, but we don't abuse children. So how do we negotiate that? It was a crazy time. It was a, it was really, it was, it was, it was a very formative, it was kind of made, it's made a huge imprint on me to this day. Uh, I still turn books around when, you know, when some handyman comes into my flat to do some work, I, I still, I still, I still like look at the books on my shelves. I'm just imprinted to, to conceal it. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. And, it's, and it, it, you know, it followed the trajectory of a standard moral panic and that much was blindingly obvious from day one, I would say. Oh, it was good that the whole thing was investigated and it was good that it was finally dealt with. There was a big, there was a, certainly, yeah, there was a big uh, report that was produced. I've, I've read it sort of years ago now um, uh, in collaboration with one of the universities. So, um but yeah, I mean, people had Jordan taken away. I think Gerald's sister was exposed in a paper and ended up losing his job as a teacher. Yeah, he uh, was a teacher. He was a choice. He was a teacher in a public school, which is a school, bo no. boys, yeah, yeah. boys private boarding school, so, and he lost his lifelong post there. Yes, yes. So even though absolutely no significant evidence of any description, the thing about it was that just the vilification of the guy led to that difficult situation for him um and you know that's it i mean and it plays into the hands of that whole thing about how you know the occult by its very nature is dangerous and hidden and all that sort of stuff yeah. um and so there was an attempt by as you say various groups had different opinions about how they should be dealt with and i think that actually what happened is that um what pagans did overall certainly in britain was dealt with it in quite a good way by and large, in as much as there was a number of different strategies being used and people didn't necessarily dispute that, you know, that, 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 that a particular strategy was, was helpful. So I remember Phil Hine talking about how um, in, I think it was probably in the pages of a zine in, in pa Pagan News, this whole thing about well, you couldn't kind of go, oh, well, it's, yes, maybe it's the Satanists, but it's not us pagans, because it's like, actually, frankly, most Satanists have got kind of better moral codes than many other people. Um, uh, and so there was that sense of like, you didn't want to, he was very adamant that he didn't want to see the community split. And I think that was an intelligent and wise move. Um, but there was, there was certainly uh, a lot of kind of concern around that, definitely for people. I was fortunate at the time I had, you know, didn't have family, didn't have kids. I could be very kind of out and I could be very kind of vociferous in my um, disagreement with, you know, what was, what was going on. I remember doing like, you know, some radio stuff back in the day and various other kind of interviews about the whole, the whole story. Um, but yeah, it does. It, it, it's it's interesting. Even even just aside of the the, the ritual abuse thing, which was later, just that sense that um, now you can go online and you can access all this stuff that normalizes the occult and yeah? that says, do you know what? Having an interest in the mystery of being a human, that's probably a perfectly reasonable place to start. You know, Socrates would be happy. Um, so that's all cool. Um, but it's, it's important, I think, to recognize the fact that, you know, the, um, problems like that whole kind of, you know, ritual abuse thing kind of tends to go in cycles, um, of one form or another. And it's 
I think it's uh, also really important for pagans to have a real uh, visibility, you know, and the pagan federation, I think, were the people who did the most to do that over that time, you know, so they were involved in creating an organization which would allow an interface with formal government. Yeah, so they were eventually able, as they now do, to advise on things like, you know, prison issues and um, uh, chaplaincy. Uh, like chaplaincy, all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So they did amazing work in that time. Very, very important. Yeah, it was a member of the Pagan Federation at the time. It's it made up of volunteers. It still is made up of volunteers. And the, the people who were involved at that time were... A, a body of people who were quite experienced in speaking to civil servants, speaking to MPs. So they were kind of the people who were most mobilized at that point, the people who uh, the establishment would listen. And uh, so, you know, the Pagan Federation, a lot of different kinds of volunteers, but those who had that particular, um, who were establishment themselves in every other way, uh, were the ones who went and spoke to the ministers, spoke to the head of police of the cult investigation unit and, and worked with them and, and it was it was very cool to see I was I was a I was a you know, student at the time and I was living in London like, and I was a lodger in Fred Lamont's house and I was you know I did I did the very uh, unglamorous paperwork stuff back in my free time uh, but I remember seeing these highly articulate very very educated people going in and like in the face of this it's crazy Commenting accusations and you know just being kind of in awe of their courage to do so um, it's quite something and, and as you said one of the things that struck me it was it was very scary for outsiders um, the occult was uh, you know, mixing with darker forces because Christianity was so much more prevalent then so anytime you had a pagan speak you also have a you know, to, to put the other side, they would bring on a priest as though it was a counter against Christianity. So, and that that's whole, you know, the mixing with darker forces. And nowadays, you know, pagan is not, doesn't conjure that, which I'm really happy about. Um, but I think for me, and I don't know how you feel about this, the thing that I think can get lost is this, the way that pagans are profoundly committed to certain pagans who work with occult practices and esoteric practices is is that we are dealing with the unknown. That's what you sign up for as an occultist. That's what you sign up for if you're an occultist and you say, okay, I'm signing up to engage with, with the things that ordinary life is unable to conceive and I will probably die unable to conceive, but that's that's what I want to work with. That's what I want to engage with. Um, and and it's a bit it's it's you know it's it's you know I I love hugging trees as much as the next person, um, but I do, I never want I never want the esotericism and the pagan esotericism to be thought of as shallow. So like the the occult side of it is very precious to me without it being demonized, and I don't know if we're ever. I always said I'd rather be laughed at than be strung up. But, you know, be, be, <laughs> I remember I had a, I was dating a guy once in the mid, late 90s, and they said, oh, well, you know, you should know this me about I'm a pagan. He said, well, I'm a bit surprised you're quite deep. Really? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, so we've swung from being Satanist to being twee. 
shit. <laughs> um, he didn't know me very well at that point. You know, we were still good friends and it was all good, but I don't know, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm surprised you're quite deep. Oh Lord. I mean, yeah. Okay. I could, that's really interesting, isn't it? Cause I think that one of the things that happened, um, and we can, you know, reflecting on say the, the paganism through the nineties, um, is that throughout that kind of decade, um, there was a real uh, powerful drive for the acceptability of paganism, which the Pagan Federation, at least in, in Britain, um, I would suggest sort of led pretty much. Um, but it was through the work of lots and lots of people, including you back in the day, you know, go back and congratulate yourself for doing that unpaid administrative stuff, which though boring, helped many people, you know. Um, but that drive for acceptability, that drive for like, hey, look, you know, we don't do these horrible things and actually we don't worship the devil and blah. And what that tends to, I think, in the imagination of some, um, to then that, that topples over into this toothless kind of, well, you know, what I essentially like is, um, I don't know, uh, you know, burning some incense in my house and having, having some crystal beads and 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 you know having this very kind of superficial um form of spirituality and i think that we would both agree and what i think you were pointing out with that that um that you've just said is that part of what magic and the occult is is this um you know it's to dare it's to go into um the the uh, the mystery and the mystery is dark it's occulted it's hidden it's unknown it is in some respects the shadow and like Jung says like you don't get illumination you don't get enlightenment you get don't get individuation through just thinking nice thoughts you have to deal with the difficult stuff and you have to challenge yourself and all of those sorts of practices that you know, and what happens is people kind of recruit, they, they, they deal with this process in a variety of ways. So what Phil was fighting against in the 90s was dealing with this process by saying, well, yes, but we're all the safe, nice pagans and over there are the evil ones. And it's actually, no, no, no. Some of the practices, some of the processes are challenging, let's call them. Yeah, they are one things that people voluntarily in a safe, sane and consensual way go into. But like you know using that language from bdsm kind of sex you can go into something that's an extreme experience you can still be in a in a way that is um respectful and thoughtful and all of those sorts of things that we would want to see but an initiatory practice for example is essentially a death and resurrection however you you know whatever stage dressing you use so that's a death that's a death and as human beings who know about our own mortality coming face to face even in a, a ritual drama with our death is a is a, a real kind of um it's an opportunity but it's also a a, 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 um, a potentially difficult process yeah however we go through that and so those things are in there those those things are absolutely legitimately and importantly part of the tradition um and so to kind of to just whitewash those out of the storyline uh, as has been imagined by you know your your date on that occasion um is uh, is also not really the full picture. Yeah, you get the extreme version of that, whereby I mean, this happens mostly in the US rather than here, where the word Wicca uh, got used in a very, very, very increasingly generic way in the world of paperbacks, and then and then online um, to the point that it doesn't, uh, for most 
for most people it often doesn't refer back to the tradition familiar with it here in the UK. Um, so, so you find these, these things which are perfectly understandable if you understand the evolution uh, where they say, oh yeah, I practice witchcraft, not Wicca. Okay, so you people trying to reclaim through uh, semantics and the use of words and the rejection of other terms and definitions and all that, which is not, it's actually not interesting to me, but except to say that um, people reject one word in order to reclaim mystery. And some people throw away a word in order to uh, reclaim uh, innocence. You know, we don't do that. I'm not this. And, and the, the way that people play around with the definitions, I'm this, but I'm not that. And I'm this and I'm not that. It's, it's, I think it's one of the, one of the arenas in which people are, are trying to deal with that. But you're absolutely right. I'm really sure that if we, Anything initiatory involves surrendering to the unknown, uh, going, throwing yourself off a cliff in some way, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. You know, we're kind of up for the whole, you know, that there's love, life, death, hopefully some rebirth, um, loss of control. You know, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it, it, we're quite distinct from white light. Everything's positive. It's like, no, everything's everything. Everything's everything, including including stuff that scares us, including stuff that we don't know, including stuff that's bloody bigger than us. You know, you do these. Um, I loved your book. Can't remember which book it was in, where you talk about the drift. I remember thinking this is really important. That when we go into out into the world, whether it's countryside or whether it's the town, to be attentive to that which is not us, spirit of place. Who wants to talk to me? What's trying to say something? Am I listening? This is not solipsistic, it's all about me. That self is important, but you know, as a pagan, as an occultist, as magicians, we're like, yeah, there are things that are not us that we need to pay attention to, or we've committed to paying attention to. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I think at, at the risk of. Um, you know, there's always that whole thing about there are two sorts of people, those who believe there are two sorts of people and those who don't. And the narcissism of mind differences. So, you know, I can equally go um, prowling the, the shelves of, of, of probably Treadwells or indeed your bookcase. And I can also find the other side of the coin, the other side of the tree. I can find those uber spooky books that have got loads of like, you know, kind of uh, octopoidal sigils, and they're all oh god, yeah. Golden. So there's that as well, you know. Yeah, and and of so all of all of this stuff is it's like, um, it's whether or not, and this is this is it, it's not about it's not even about the superficial kind of set dressing. It's fundamentally about like what is your practice. So I have I have a friend who's one of the most hardcore practitioners that I know, and he's amazing, 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 uh, powerful magician. And he's also recently taken up uh, doing angelic Reiki. So he does angelic Reiki, but he does like a whole bunch of other stuff, which I won't burden our listeners with. But, you know, these really kind of like hardcore, amazing practices, all delightful and in the service, best service of, um, you know, all, all sentient beings. Um, so I think that one of the other things that, that I, I mean, and I like this, you know, I like what one of the things I kind of like about um, sort of chaos magic, but also more broadly the way magic is now, is that one of the, the, the sort of in, indicative things for me about like a good practitioner is that they, they aren't solely locked into like one aesthetic or one domain of the, the, the material, you know, that they are finding their way through it, some of which will look kind of comedic and fun and 
you know, white light, some yeah. of which look kind of chiffonic and spooky books in the corner. <laughs> yeah. You know, some of which will look like sort of, you know, going out into the landscape and engaging with the spirits and some of which will look like, you know, doing lots of yoga or something. And, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, I love yoga with Adrian. I mean, she's amazing. You know, <gasps> so do I. She's I'm amazing. She's oh amazing. my God. Right. Okay, listen. I was talking to another occultist actually, and they went, Oh, do you know this person on you? Of course I do. She's brilliant. Her and Benji, fantastic. Anyway, I, I know, I know, like, I know, like, four super senior Wiccan coven leaders of decades of experience. Like, we were all like gookaroning about, like, Oh, yeah, we love a Wiccan with it. Yeah, we love yoga with Adrian. It's just, she's the master of her thing. She's a master of her thing. I don't know what it is. You just get on that mat with her, or in my case, just, you know, my dog haired covered, you know, rug. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'm in her zone. You just feel her. It's just, she's totally in her, she's the mistress of her thing. And I, I'm there totally with her. I'm with her for it. <laughs> oh, no, I have a beautiful image in my mind of like you and Rambo and then Benji and Adrian on, <laughs> on you know, doing yoga together across the interweb. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> but I love what you said that. Yeah, you that you you look for people who are finding their way through this. I love that. I really, really love that. One of the things that I'm leaping back to is like what is transgressive varies from uh varies from generation to generation. And I, this is because I've been rereading a whole load of nineteen fifties uh Wicca history stuff for a, a, a book I'm, I'm working on. But I found myself, you know, so I'm reading all these interviews from 1951, 1953, newspaper interviews with Gerald Gardner, with Lois Bourne, with Pat Crowther. And they were having to explain over and over and over again that, that in, in their pagan world, sex was not a sin. Wow. I'm like... Mind blown. Mind blown. <laughs> So, so, and they're, they're like, no, no, we don't have orgies. It's not about orgies. And, you know, even if they did, it's their business. But, it's, you know, the point of this interview is that, you know, Wicker says that our, our tradition says sex is not a sin, that joy is not a sin, that being, having, having physical ecstasy of, of dancing and singing and drumming, uh, you know, that this is, find this in, in uh, tribal religions or religions all over the world. Uh, and, it's not a sin for them and it's not a sin for us either. No. And I'm like, and I'm saying, I started initially, I'm just skipping over that because it's boring to me. But I'm thinking, wait a sec, this was a very big deal. This mm -hmm. was a very, very big deal that there could be a religion in which sex was not a sin. There was, yeah, anyway. Um, and the other big thing that incredibly, uh, they would find to get through to people and that the interviewers just keep pressing them on is the most bonkers thing ever. It's that they, that they, that they worship a goddess. You know, they worship a god as well. And that was, you know, the interviewers were fine with that. But like, really? And the third really super transgressive thing is that, that mm -hmm. ceremonies were led by a woman. And in fact, the group was led by a woman. And the interviewers kept trying to speak to the husbands. And the husbands keep saying, I refer you to, <laughs> I refer you to my wife, the high priestess, uh, because the interviews really struggled. And, and so you start finding the interviews have the husbands out of the room in order that the interviewer has to speak to the woman. Wow. That sounds like, I mean, that's amazing material to be going through. And I think that that's really important. And it's really important perhaps for um, all of us to kind of recognize the fact that it was 
those people making those assertions time and again and saying, yeah, those those things, you know, that um, that we worship a goddess and consider the, the, the feminine of critical importance, that uh, sexuality and sex are sacred and central to uh, the, the form of Wicca. Um, and that it is the great right. Uh, and that idea that the women could speak. Now that sounds, it sounds like you're saying, when you read that material, you kind of go, oh, well, this is just like, you know, but you've got to think about the context and the time and how radical that is and how the fact that now, I like to think in many contexts, people wouldn't find that, you know, oh, so you think sex is sacred? Oh, well, that kind of makes sense. Oh, you have a goddess. Oh, well, you know, lots of people have a goddess. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, and I'm, I'm speaking to the woman. Oh, yes, yes, of course. It should be normalized, yeah? That's the way we get rid of this nonsense. That's the way we kind of get rid of things like, I don't know, you know, racism, systemic racism, is to eventually get to the point, or like, or like homophobia, to the point where it becomes almost unthinkable that you would do this. You would just go, well, makes no sense, makes no sense. And that's good. That sense of now it makes no sense is good. And that's what all of those people worked for so yeah. that it would make no sense. And, and so I think that, yeah, so that, that transformation is done. And that's, that's part of the, that's the social aspect of that magic. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's, I find myself thinking about, well, what was it in the seventies? What it was in the eighties? What is it in the nineties? What is it for us now? What, what are the things that, you know, as, occultists as magical practitioners uh, whatever tradition or finding our own way what are the things that kind of we need to speak out for now you know certain things have become normalized certain things haven't um i know you know in, amongst amongst wicca which has this you know where the, the people in the 50s were so breaking so many uh social taboos and trying to normalize sexuality as a sacred thing now that's been refined to well what about trans people what about homosexuality homosexuality is now just about fun. um transsexuality uh people get a hard time getting their head around it. yes but the, but the, yes but binaries yes but polarities yes but oh but in the 50s they said this and i'm like found myself thinking well you know they were they were they were fighting the most important battles that they were faced with with the tools that they had. So we can take the example of that work as magical practitioners. Say, what are the injustices that are against, in a sense, pagan values that we have? And let's use the example of the methods, but not get tied to fight the battles that, thank God, they won for what they were facing. You know, um, I, I think there's there's two things there for me. One is that. Um, those battles, although they were won, they are they are continuously won by every opportunity for um, you know the the goddess to, to take central stage, sex to be be uh, recognised as sacred, and for women to have the opportunity to speak. Yeah. That's like every time. I mean, you know, as a man, part of I know part of my job is to like shut up and listen more frequently because of there's there's that statistic about when you have it'd be interesting measuring this conversation how much have I have spoken in relation to you. Um, so I think that one thing is that those are continuously asserted rights. I think that the, the one of the things for now, in terms of where we are in history, is looking at the role that. Um, entheogens, psychedelics, drugs play within the magical tradition, because that's still very much um, uh, off-piste uh, yeah. from the point of view of lots of cultural settings. 
and it's still very much part of the tradition, part of the story. You know, even Wicker has got, what is it, Path 4, I think, which talks about the use of wine and, 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 uh, and hemp. So, you know, it's part, that's part of the storyline as well, guys. And, and we're in a different part of um, the narrative as far as those things are concerned. So I think that the, one of the pressure, pressure points, as well as the whole thing about um, gender and sexual identity and the relationship with, in the case of Wicker in particular, the notions of polarity, but the other one is, uh, is, is drugs. I think one of the great things about drugs is what you find, hopefully, we can do is kind of what we did about some other issues like sexuality, whatever, is, is take, kind of take the example from cultures that have not demonized those things, but, um, but not colonize either. You know, and one of the great things that I remember, again, this is referring back to the stuff that I've been reading about the 1950s, where, you know, you find these early gardenarians, gardenarians friends saying, oh, you know, we do dancing and drumming and chanting and, uh, we, you know, ecstasy of the spirit from the kinds of things that Gardner saw in Sarawak and Borneo and in Malaysia and in West Africa and also in the southern states of the U.S. when he was, I guess, it's the Voodoo ceremonies. But he didn't come back and say, okay, well, we're going to do the Voodoo chants and songs. We're going to, he didn't, it wasn't a lifting. It was like, okay, dancing and singing, that belongs to humanity. It changes our state of consciousness. Um, we will do that. And then the songs that they sang were from, you know, bloody well English folklore, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, and the thing that I find really interesting within theogens is, yeah, the, those have been so marginalized by, uh, early 20th century obsession and warrior addiction and the demonization of all, everybody who takes drugs becomes a drug addict in an alley and, you know, the will means not giving your will to drugs and all of that stuff. If we're going to, I think one of these that's really important to me in terms of racism and colonialism is, right, let's look at the cultures that work within theogens, but let's not asset strip them um, of their cultural uniqueness. No? I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> anyway, I'll get off my pulpit and let you talk a bit. No, I think that's a, I think it's an interesting point. I mean, I would say that going back to the thing about the, the 90s, so as we had 1988-89, which in Britain is often described as the second summer of love, so it was the advent of um, ecstasy, MDMA being widely, for the first time, kind of available um, within culture. And what humans did is humans set up, however imperfectly, uh, festivals outdoors where they would have percussive music for long periods of time and t- places for people to lie down and enjoy going into the dreamlike environment or socializing with their friends. So that basic model, um, which is, you know, it's, it, 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 in many respects, there's a lot of similarities with the kind of um, entheogenic cultures. I mean, the one that developed in, in um, uh, America in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, so the Native American church, they have a drum rhythm that they use in their rituals, and the drum rhythm is exactly the same as a fast techno drum rhythm, and that's how it works, because it's the same, peyote and MDMA are basically, you know, chemically very, very similar. Um, so I think we actually have an instinctive drive to create ritual, and of course, obviously we tend to, to uh, fetch on the things that are kind of around us in our environment, and I think it's, it's, um, it is an important kind of discussion about at what point are we nicking somebody else's stuff and and pretending to be I don't know you know people doing a, a, a ceremony in the Dominican Republic and then doing the same ceremony with you know what in a different location how cool is that whatever I think some of it is 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 about citation 
and the magical the magical tradition up until recently has not been great at that. We are arguably, you know, we're brilliant at, at, synchro, at, at kind of syncretic um, uh, structuring, but we are really, really, really rubbish when it comes to saying, by the way, I took this from Anifus Levi. By the way, this is from Alistair Crowley. This is from Pete Carroll. Oh, this is one of Dion Fortune's poems. Oh, this is actually a piece of uh, Dorian Valiente. And, I, you know, I, so I would like to see just, just that. I think in terms of cultural appropriation, it would be just really nice to say, <laughs> you know, I've done this. I've set up rituals and kind of gone, look, before we do this ritual, I'm going to tell you, like, how come I've set up this ritual and who, who I want to pay respect to. It's nice. It's a nice thing. It's great. It situates your own practice thoughtfully in this web of other magical process you know um but tell me tell me how you uh, i mean you you're now at the point where you're doing some consultation on research for it you've got you know you've got practice around it um it's something you care about a lot you've been working with it for a long time I guess, I mean, you know, the, the, the short version of the story is that when I was a kid and I was about 13, possibly even younger than that, I read um, uh, John Simmons' book, The Great Beast with Alistair Crowley. And Alistair Crowley seemed to be like really cool and interesting. And Alistair Crowley took drugs. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to take drugs. That sounds brilliant. So um, Alistair Crowley was my gateway drug to drugs, which is <laughs> sort of a thing. Um, and it took a long, long time, you know, I sort of worked in Wicca and did ceremony and stuff without any use of anything beyond, you know, wine and tobacco uh, for many, many years. And then became interested in those practices, brought those into kind of blending them with my own ritual practice, working with various kind of practitioners, both, um, well, but both sort of, you know, underground stuff, but also with traditional kind of entheogenic practitioners from, um, you know, North and South America and from, um, uh, India um, and I guess for me I really see these as very very important tools they're important in terms of my tradition as an occultist but also now because I, I've, I've got kind of connections with the research that's been going on into it and the possibility of using these to kind of help people um, they are potentially very very useful substances for people who want to uh, utilize those as part of their their healing journey let's call it yeah so people with post-traumatic stress disorder people with kind of you know um, addictions people with anxiety depression i was part of a, a licensed trial for these medicines um uh, in this um, very early part of um, 2019 you know taking psilocybin in a hospital because they know that that plus some psychotherapy around it you know maybe some follow-up process this is the best thing. This is the best thing. And, and the thing is that if the human brain responds to psychedelics in a particular way, and the way it responds is very, very similar to the way that we get it to respond when we do ritual without psychoactives. You know, all of those practices of dancing and drumming and ritual, you know, meditative practice and so on, really similar. Even the neurology is really similar. You know, the bits that light up in the fMRI scanner are really similar. So, so it's like, you know, this is part of our, as occultists, as this is part of our lineage, whether as individuals we choose to engage with it or not. And it's certainly something that could really help our, our, our communities. Um, it's been demonized for far too long and uh, its absence has probably not helped us as communities. Um, you know, there's, I shall shut up after this. I will briefly say one thing. So, 
When the doors to the Temple of Eleusis closed in 400 AD or thereabouts, we no longer had the psychedelic experience in Northwestern Europe. Our culture then went mental. We went round for the next few hundred years predating on the rest of the planet using uppers and downers that we found in other people's places. Tobacco, cocaine, sugar, coffee, um, opium, uh, all these substances. And we became addicted, addicted to conquest, addicted to violence, addicted to uh, extractivism and exploitation. Now, an individual person who had a really powerful addiction, you could treat them by giving them a psychedelic in the right set and setting. Our culture didn't have access to psychedelics for, you know, what, 1500 years. And in that time, it all went horribly wrong. This is the culture that brought you two world wars, nuclear Armageddon and environmental meltdown. So I think bringing those substances back into culture might be the healing that we need. I'll now shut up. <laughs> Sorry, just the, that's the... That's right, I got on my puppet for one thing. You got on your puppet for yours. That's fine. We're, 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 we're good with that. Um, I think it's interesting. I think it's happening. I, I do think that it's... I, I, it's funny, we talk, we're going back about transgression and, and acceptability. I think there'll be people who will be open to taking psychedelics or some sort of entheogen once it's accepted in the medical environment and there are people there are suicides that will be prevented because of that um and it's great yeah and it wouldn't be there without people who stepped outside and did it underground and advocated for it and you know and then what was the, that, that, that thing of inter, inter interacting between the highly and and the stuff that is obvious. Uh, those it's that it's that the, the walkers between the worlds are, are doing great things. Uh, so thank you for that work that you do. Um, you were uh, you got involved in in the occult. I guess what 13, 14, You got your Crowley books, and you're now forty years on from that. Your, your 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 most exciting work at the moment you told me before before we started talking was was the entheogen stuff um you now live out in the countryside sort of yeah you live out um, in, in the most beautiful one of those beautiful parts of england uh what's daily life like for you it's pretty good at the moment i've i've returned to my day job which is working in, in uh, i do i do um work in galleries it's a bit strange of course mm -hmm. given the uh, global pandemic um but, you know, interesting to kind of be getting back into that kind of environment. Um, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I'm doing lots and lots, I guess, like a lot of people, lots of Zoom calls, lots of kind of emailing, lots of kind of maintaining things like that. I think um, what's daily life like for me now? Um, I hope that we can hold on to some of the insights that we've got through this time. And I hope we can transfer those into whatever social and political action will best serve the good insights that people have had while they've been on retreat. So I was just talking to a colleague today and we were just talking about like the experience of, of um, I don't know, just not being, um, you know, being in a fortunate position, not being uh, perhaps furloughed from work, which means that, um, that uh, the rat race was temporarily suspended. And people realized that, that um, we run at capacity quite a lot, a lot of us, you know? Uh, even when you're, you know, not at work, you're thinking about work, you know, and and we 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 might be driven to this. You know, I'm fortunate. I've part of what drives me in my 
professional life is that I love what I do and I'm, I'm good at it. Um, but I can see, you know, if you, if you, were if you had found that um, you're now returning to your awful job or that you had to keep working while everyone else, nine million other people in the country were having, you know, every day being Sunday, there's a, there's a real set of disconnections and uncertainties that are going to emerge over the next few months. And I'm really interested to see kind of how, how that pans out. I really hope people remember um, what they've learned in this time. You know, I hope I can recall uh, those things and I don't just get kind of swept up into the next, um, the next story. We, you know, we've got to see what happens pragmatically with the virus, you know? Yeah, we really yeah. do. I mean, what about you? Is, tre is Treadwell still thriving? <laughs> we're getting ready for um, a facelift refurbishment uh yeah so we're taking advantage of it being closed to do some renovations and a bit you know hang some new curtains repaint the walls stuff that we couldn't do we couldn't have, we just stuff was open so we're doing that and i myself i just am enjoying having more time you know i just again i'm one of those people who I love what i do it's a blessing but I run at capacity and a lot of what I do is really social and I'm, and yet fundamentally I'm quite an introvert. So the, the just getting back into the, the self that has time to read the books and you know, pick the flowers and you know, make herbal concoctions is, oh, her. Yeah. Oh, her. Yeah. Oh yeah. I can do this. I'm into this. So uh, <laughs> that's what I've been doing. Well, we're pushing up for an hour, so we're going to wind it up. Julian, thank you so much for your time with us and thank you for all your workshops that you do on Zoom now that we're not in person and uh, we will speak again very soon. Thank you so much, Christina. Lovely to see you and um, yeah, all the best to you and all the Treadwell's crew. Really nice. Oh, and thanks to all our listeners. Okay, bye-bye and take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this Treadwells podcast. For information on future events, as well as books, tarot cards, candles and more, please visit www.treadwells-london.com.